Our text this morning is Luke 19, verses 45 through 48. Luke 19, 45 through 48. And he entered the temple and began to drive out those who sold, saying to them, It is written, My house shall be a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of robbers. And he was teaching daily in the temple. The chief priests and the scribes and the principal men of the people were seeking to destroy him, but they did not find anything they could do, for all the people were hanging on his words. Uh, Father, as we come before this text, eh, Lord, I ask that you would give us a better understanding of who Jesus is, that our love for him would grow. Father, I pray that you would give us a better understanding of our own sin and uh, that we might repent and come to Christ and just cling uh, closer to Him, that our love for Him would grow all the more as we see our need. Lord, I pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Well, I can tell you I have a good wife. I don't know when, it, when is a good time to brag on your wife. This seems like as good as any. When we were singing... Uh, Laura leaned over and said, is your mic on? She's watching out for you guys. <laughs> and I said, no, I'm just singing extra loud this morning. She says, oh, that's good. That's good. So she's looking out for you and she's being kind to me. Uh, but we've been married 19 years and I just got to tell you how thankful I am. Uh, the pastor is always up front, uh, and you see me, but Laura has been such a blessing, and there's so much burden that she bears along with the ministry just through me, and a lot that she's during, doing during the week, and I just wanna, want you to know that your pastor loves his wife so much. And and I'm just thankful for the first 19 years, and I just pray uh, for many more. Um, so, to our text. One of the privileges of spending a couple years in Luke is we get to encounter Christ. If God didn't preserve the Gospels, if He didn't give us His Word, we would know nothing about Himself. God is transcendent. He's outside of us. We know Him through His Word. So whenever we get to encounter Christ in the Gospels, the privilege I think we often take for granted. And when we encounter him, we're often surprised. He's doing what we wouldn't expect him to do. And when we encounter Christ, if we're honest with ourselves and with our own hearts, 
it's difficult because the sinful human heart maybe treasures autonomy above all things. We want to have our own authority over our own life. Adam and Eve didn't want to be bound under God's word, oppressive word, right? Where they could eat of every tree of the garden but one. They wanted out from underneath of that. When, it, when John talks about the world, tells us not to love the world in 1 John 2.15, here's how he describes the world. The lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life. Lust of the flesh, I want to do what I want to do when I want to do it. It's my body. Lust of the eyes, God's ripping me off. He hasn't given me what I think I deserve. The pride of life, I want the glory. So when we see Christ in this text, you may be tempted to say, oh, those Pharisees, those religious leaders, always bucking Jesus' authority. And I want to challenge you on the front end to don't fall into that trap, but recognize that as you face this glorious Christ with all authority, if you're not humbled by it, if you're not convicted by it, then you've missed the point. Because those who stood unconvicted were good on the outside. They were able to look at the people and say, we're the good ones and they're the bad ones. But Jesus cares about your heart. So it's really easy for us to fall into that trap. The Apostle Paul learned the authority of Christ. 1 Corinthians 15.31, he says, I protest, brothers, by my pride in you, which I have in Christ Jesus our Lord, I die every day. <laughs> Paul had to learn that to follow Christ means I don't have authority and autonomy over my life. Or in Acts 20, Paul, when he's speaking to the Ephesian elders, he says that the Holy Spirit, in verse 23, testifies to me that in every city, imprisonment and afflictions wait for me. How would you respond <laughs> to that? Here's what he says. But I do not account my life as of any value or precious to myself if only I may finish my course and the ministry I receive from the Lord Jesus. By the grace of God, Paul understood that his life had no value or no preciousness to himself, but he wanted to be faithful to Jesus Christ, the Lord. And he goes on in that same text to say, and now behold, I know that none of you among whom I've gone about proclaiming the kingdom will see my face again. Therefore, I testify to you this day that I am innocent of the blood of all, for I did not shrink back from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. Pay careful attention. He's talking to elders. To yourselves and to all the flock 
in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to take to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. Paul understands authority. My life is not my own. I need to fulfill my ministry. It's not my church. It's his church. Christ bought the church with his own blood. And it's easy for us as Christians to grab the parts of Christ that doesn't encroach in with authority on our lives and reject the parts that rubber meets the road. Who's in control of my life? Is Christ or am I? As we look at this text, it's incredible what is going on here. Let's just get the story uh, in view. So he has just pronounced judgment on Israel. Jerusalem is good. There's going to be a siege against Jerusalem and Jerusalem is going to go down. And he had rode into the city being proclaimed the son of David, the Messiah. They're expecting him to come to the temple, probably take out uh, the garrison uh, there on the edge of the temple wall or maybe go attack Herod. And he doesn't. In fact, at the end of that day when they were hailing him as king in Mark 11, 11, it says he entered Jerusalem and went into the temple. And when he had looked around at evening, as it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. Here we go. We've seen him calm the sea. <laughs> We've seen him raise the dead. We've seen him create food. He's the Messiah. He's receiving the worship. I don't know how he's going to take Herod down, but Rome is going down because in the hearts of the people, that's what the Messiah was supposed to come and do. Take out their enemies. But Jesus, who has a habit of doing the opposite of what people think, we read in verse 45, he entered the temple and began to drive out those who sold. The very opposite of what people would expect. He attacks the most valued, precious part of Israel. Not what they expected his authority has already been on display he started his ministry in john 2 in verse 13 this way the passover of the jews was at hand and jesus went up to jerusalem in the temple he found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons and the money changers sitting there and making a whip of cords now just just imagine Jesus sits down outside the temple and he starts braiding something. Something. What are you doing, Jesus? I'm making a whip of 
cords. And he says, making a whip of cords, he drove them all out of the temple. Thousands and thousands of people with the sheep and the oxen. And he poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. And he told those who sold pigeons, take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. And his disciples remembered that it was written, zeal for your house will consume me. So his ministry begins with a type of authority that no one could ever imagine and no one had ever seen. And then he went on to cast out demons. He taught in a way, unlike the other rabbis, his teaching had authority. He calmed the storm. He challenged the leaders. He forgave sins. He healed the sick. He raised the dead. And here at the end of his ministry, he's going to go into the temple again and drive them out. Here's Mark's account. We, we gain a little bit from all the different accounts. Uh, uh, Mark uh, 11.15, and they came to Jerusalem. So the night before, Mark said, he went and looked around. And then he comes back. So on Monday, he rode in Jer- Jerusalem. Palm Monday. Tuesday is when this event takes place. He's in the last week of his life. The last time they would ever want to kill Christ would be during Passover when millions and millions of people were in the city. But this event pushed their hands where they had no choice in their minds. So Mark eleven fifteen, and they came to Jerusalem and he entered the temple and began to drive out those who sold and those who bought in the temple. He overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. Ripped the chairs out from people's seats when they're sitting on them. You'd fall on the ground if that happened. Jesus' authority is coming out physically and it's not against Rome and it's not against the pagan culture and it's not against those bad ones out there. It's the against the precious jewel of Judaism, the very opposite of what people would expect him to do. John MacArthur writes, instead of attacking the pagan idolatrous occupying Romans, Jesus assaulted the doings at the temple, the heart of Judaism, the soul of the nation. By doing so, he attacked the respected, elevated religious leaders of Israel who claimed to represent God. The Lord was declaring that he was not concerned with Israel's relationship to Rome, but with the nation's relationship to God. MacArthur goes on to say, Jesus' ministry was not about social justice. It was not about all the wrongs in societies. It's not that he didn't say those things were sinful. That's just not what he came to do. Jesus knew that if you want change, your change has to be between you and God. What Jesus didn't do 
And what he did do tells us a lot about the mission that he left us to do. And it's shocking. People were thinking the biggest problem in Israel is all these pagan coins with this pagan king and and all these unclean people in our city. And that is not where he decided to attack. Now, the temple was an incredible place. The temple had been turned in to a lucrative business for the priests and the higher-ups in Israel. You see, in order to offer your lamb, it had to be without blemish. So you bring a lamb from your own flock into Jerusalem, the priests have the right to reject that lamb, and you'll have to buy one of theirs at an exorbitant price. In your coinage, you're going to have to exchange your money with them, and they're going to rip you off when you do the money exchange. And so at this point in time, the temple had become a place where the religious authorities were far from God, and their greed was high, and they were taking advantage of the people of Israel. Now imagine the temple. There's two words for temple. One is hieros. It's a general term. That's the term we have in our text. And then there's another word, naos, which describes specifically the holy place, the inner part of the temple. If you can imagine the temple as uh, concentric uh, like squares where you get closer to the center and in the center is the holy place and in the center of the holy place is the holies of holies. The outer court is called the court of the Gentiles. This is most likely where this event took place. When you think of court of the Gentiles, think of several football fields big around the entire temple. Huge area. In Jesus' day, it would have been like a stockyard. Selling animals, exchanging coins. This is where business was set up. The problem is, the court of the Gentiles was supposed to be the court where Gentiles could come and worship the God of Abraham and pray and repent of their sins. And this is supposed to be a witness to the Gentiles and to the nations. That's the purpose of the court. And if you were a Gentile and you came in, what you would have saw, if you cared about the witness and the love God has for the Gentiles, would have infuriated you. The witness was the opposite of what it was supposed to be. So you have the court of the Gentiles. Gentiles can only come that far. You can't go through the gate that enters into the court of the women. So Israelite women could go into the second court. And then there was a third court called the court of the Israelites. Israelite men could go into that court. And then there was the court of the priests. So the Israelite men could look in and they could see the altar through the gate and they could watch the priests. The court of the priests, only priests could enter offering sacrifices. 
And then you have the structure that's no longer like a courtyard, but the temple temple, the holy place. And you know in the center of the holy place is the most holy place where the high priest would go in on the Day of the Atonement once a year and offer sacrifices for the people. The temple was a place on earth where the visible presence of God dwelt with man. It was a visual representation, manifestation of God's holiness. Why all the walls? Why can't the Gentiles go by that gate? Why can the women only come this far? Why do Israelite men have to stop here? Why only priests here? Why only the high priests there? Because God is holy. And if you enter that place and you're not clean and you're not sanctified as holy, you will die if you enter the presence of God with sin upon you. The whole temple said, God's holy and you're not holy. It was a representation of God's beauty and power and our weakness. It was uh, visibly an illustration of how sin separates us from a holy God and our need for priests to offer sacrifices. That was the picture To give you a little bit of an idea, Leviticus 21, verse 16. Here's what's prescribed to Aaron. The Lord spoke to Moses saying, speak to Aaron saying, none of your offspring throughout their generations who has a blemish may approach to offer the bread of his God. They can't offer an offering even if They're an offspring of Aaron if they have a blemish. For one who has a blemish shall, for no one who has a blemish shall draw near. A blind, or a man blind or lame, or one who has a mutilated face or a limb too long, or a man who has an injured foot or an injured hand or a hunchback or a dwarf or a man with a defect in his sight or an itching disease, or scabs, or crushed testicles. Yikes. No man of the offspring of Aaron the priest who has a blemish shall come near to offer the Lord's food offerings. Since he has a blemish, he shall not come near to offer the bread of his God. He may eat the bread of his God, of the most holy and holy things, but he shall not go through the veil or approach the altar because he has a blemish that he may not profane my sanctuaries for I am the Lord who sanctifies them. This is just one example of the rules. And maybe you've read that law and you've thought, boy, that's not very nice. You can't help it if, if you're born with a defect. The point is, God is holy. All defect, we live in a fallen world because of sin. Doesn't mean that person was personally more sinful, but they weren't allowed to come in. You say, why, why are we taking all this time to think about this? Because it's amazing what our text says and what 
actually happens when we look at this. Jesus always seemed to be at odds, or he must have seemed to be at odds with the average Israelite, be at odds with the temple. What does Jesus have against this temple? He starts out his ministry, he runs everyone out of the temple, and he's angry. Luke 19.41, he said, Jerusalem's going to be destroyed. Luke 21, while some are speaking of the temple, how it was adorned with noble stones and offerings, this is verse 5, he said, as for these things you see, the days will come when there will not be left one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. Man, we're admiring how nice it is and he seems to be against the temple. He says in Matthew 12, 6, I tell you something greater than the temple is here. Speaking of himself. Or how about in Luke 5, when he heals the paralytic and he says, man, your sins are forgiven. And the scribes and the Pharisees begin to question saying, who is this that speaks blasphemies? Who can forgive sins but God alone? You realize that when you brought your offerings to the temple and there was an offering set for you, what you realize is that because God is gracious, your sins could be forgiven. So you would bring your offering or you'd bring your sacrifice <coughs> to the temple and then you would go feast with your family and you'd worship God. Why? Because you remember that God is gracious and he forgives sins. And who is this Jesus that just stands in a house and says, your sins are forgiven? That's an attack on the temple. How dare he just say, your sins are forgiven? John 4.19, what David read, the woman at the well, Sir, I, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshiped on this mountain, but I say to you that in Jerusalem, the place, uh, it, our, our fathers worshiped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. Jesus said to her, woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. What's he have against the temple? You see? You would... The average Israelite would be struggling. How dare he make himself greater than this place? And what we see is Jesus' undeniable authority. How in the world can one man shut down the biggest lucrative... <laughs> scheme you've ever seen of thousands of people drive everyone out for three days Jesus ruled that temple for three days he preached the gospel in that temple and their businesses were shut down what authority must he have to drive them out and keep them out incredible authority. Consider Jesus's undeniable trust in the authority of the scriptures. Look at verse 46. 
So here's what he said when he did it. And here's where we get a key to our text. He said to them, it is written. All that Jesus did, he rooted in the authority of Scripture. If you ever thought that if there's one man who doesn't have to do that, it's going to be the Son of Man who himself, all his words are God's words. And yet Jesus continually rooted everything he did in the authority of Scripture. And he says, it is written, my house shall be a house of prayer. He quotes Isaiah 56. But you have made it into a den of robbers. He quotes Jeremiah 7. Now, what the temple was supposed to be is a place of repentance, a place of prayer, a place of, of being made right with God. Listen to Psalm 65.4. Blessed is the one you choose to bring near to dwell in your courts. We shall be satisfied with the goodness of your house, the holiness of your temple. Or Psalm 27.4. One thing I've asked of the Lord that I will seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in His temple, to pray, to meditate on who God is in this temple. 1 Kings 8.29 That your eyes may be open night and day towards this house, the place of which you said, My name shall be there that you may listen to the prayer that your servant offers toward this place. It's a house of prayer. It's a place of meditation. And when Jesus walked in, you would have heard cattle making a racket in the court of the Gentiles. You would have heard money changers. You would have seen greed everywhere. You would have seen frustrated, oppressed people who are broke having to be ripped off by their spiritual leaders. But what Jesus does is when he says, my house shall be a house of prayer, he sends us to Isaiah 56. And this is the key. And Scott read this already, but I want you to see it. What Jesus is doing here is something incredibly dramatic and he's fulfilling this text. Isaiah 56. Thus says the Lord, keep justice and do righteousness. For soon my salvation will come and my righteousness be revealed. You're not going to have righteousness. My righteousness is going to be revealed to you. <coughs> Blessed is the man who does this and his son who holds it fast who keeps the Sabbath, not profaning it, and keeps his hand from doing any evil. Look at verse 3. Now track with me here. Let not the foreigner who has joined himself to the Lord say, the Lord will surely separate me from his people. And let not the eunuch say, behold, I am a dry tree. When this day comes, don't let the foreigner say, I've been separated. I can't go into those courts. And don't let the eunuch, one who is blemished, say, Behold, I am a dry tree, for thus says the Lord, 
to the eunuchs who keep my Sabbath, who choose the things that please me and hold fast to my co- covenant, I will give my house. I, I, I will give in my house and within my walls a monument and a name better than sons and daughters. And I'll give them an everlasting name that shall not be cut off. And the foreigners who join themselves to the Lord to minister to him, to love the name of the Lord and to be his servants, everyone who keeps the Sabbath and does not profane it and holds fast my covenant, these I'll bring into my holy mountain and make them joyful in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and their sacrifices will be accepted on my altar. Not Gentiles? No way! Their sacrifices on God's holy altar? For my house shall be called a house of prayer for all the people. The Lord God who gathers the outcasts of Israel declares, I'll gather yet others to him besides those already gathered. All you beasts of the field uh, come and devour all you beasts in the forest. His watchmen are blind, the leaders of Israel. They are without knowledge. They are all silent dogs. They cannot bark, dreaming and lying down, loving to slumber. Jesus quotes that text when he's cleansing the temple. This court that's meant to be a witness to the Gentiles has become the very opposite of that. How in the world, the Israelites must have scratched their heads, how will a Gentile offer sacrifices? How will be they, they be accepted in the holy mountain, within the walls, better than sons? How in the world will that ever come to be? And then when he says, but you've made it a den of robbers, he points us to Jeremiah 7. We don't have time to go there, but you've seen these texts before where all of Jeremiah 7 is God railing on the, on the wicked Israelite leaders. And what he's warning is, is he says, if you don't repent, your temple is going to be torn down. And in Jeremiah's life, it was torn down. And Jesus had just said, this city is going to be destroyed. He walks into the temple. He drives everyone out. And he quotes Isaiah 56, which is good news for the Gentiles. This court is becoming a wonderful place to be if you're an outcast if you're blemished if you're rejected if you won't be accepted and you want to know something matthew's account matthew 21 verse 12 listen to what he says and jesus entered the temple and drove out all who sold and bought in the temple and he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons And he said to them, it is written, my house shall be called a house of prayer, but you've made it a den of robbers. And the blind and the lame came to him in the temple and he healed them. Boom. This is where you rejoice in your heart. As you realize the reason why they can come into the temple is because the one who is the perfect sacrifice once and for all, who sanctifies us once and for all is the reason why we can come in and we can 
be healed. You see, you look at this text and you're like, ah, this is where Jesus gets angry. Here's where he really shows his wrath. Well, yeah, you see, Jesus isn't some fluffy teddy bear. He has authority. But really, what's the lion's share of this text? Is it grace? Beyond all imagination? Or is it judgment? Well, it's definitely both. It's judgment. But how often are we missing what Jesus is actually doing and fulfilling when he's the blind are coming in and he's healing them? And we're told in our own text, in, in Luke 20, verse 1, the very next verse, it says, or look, just look at verse 47. Here we'll consider Jesus' undeniable message. And he was teaching daily in the temple. So he drives them out and he starts teaching there. The chief priests and the scribes and the principal men were seeking to destroy him, but they did not find anything they could do for all the people were hanging on his words. See, they're kind of trapped. You say, what was he teaching? What was he preaching? Look at the very next verse in chapter 20. One day, Jesus was teaching in the temple and preaching the gospel. That's what he was preaching. The good news, finally, this temple that's meant to scream out to be a blessing to the nations, the gospel is supposed to come out of Israel. Finally, during these three days, the message is going out. Out of the temple. God is not being mocked inside those doors. Tuesday, Wednesday, and Thursday. Christ is ruling the temple. Which pushed them to the point where, okay... All of our political schemes, catch him. Okay, we're out, of, we're out of our options. Even though it's going to be unpopular, even though it might cause a riot, whatever. Kill him. Get rid of him. So we consider the undeniable message. Jesus was always preaching the good news of the kingdom of God, the gospel. He was preaching it often to the Gentiles who were the main ones who responded to him. And so we see, in a sense, a transition. He speaks judgment on Israel. <laughs> Gentiles are hearing the good news of the gospel for themselves. He's about to tell a parable in the very next chapter of uh, the vineyard, the servants in the vineyard, where he will destroy the wicked servants and give the vineyard to others. And so that's where we're at in the context of this text. Jesus is the temple of God. You realize that, right? <laughs> God dwelt on earth in the person of Jesus Christ. He fulfills the temple. That's what he was saying to the 
woman at the well that you're not going to worship him on this mountain or that mountain, but you're going to worship in spirit and in truth by trusting by faith in Christ. You worship Christ every time you humble yourself, submit to his authority willingly and trust in him by faith. You worship him wherever you are, no matter what you're going through. I love how Paul says it in Philippians 3.8. He says, I count everything loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Jesus Christ my Lord. For his sake I've suffered the loss of all things and count them rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him. In that temple. Not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. I count everything lost that I might be found inside Christ. I'm sanctified there. I'm connected to the Father there. No more separation because of sin when I'm in Christ. And Psalm 84 is written in a time when they didn't have the temple to go worship. Listen, listen, listen to the psalmist in Psalm 84. How lovely is your dwelling place, O Lord of hosts. My soul longs, yes, faints for the courts of the Lord. My heart and my flesh sing for joy to the living God. Even the sparrow finds a home and the swallow a nest for herself where she may lay her young at your altars. O Lord of hosts, my King and my God, blessed are those who dwell in your house the house isn't there. What's the psalmist talking about? Ever singing your praise. Blessed are those whose strength is in you and whose heart are highways to Zion. <laughs> There's a way to worship God in the temple if your heart is highways to Zion. And then he says, as they go through the valley of Baca, a desolate place, they make it a place of springs and the early rain also covers it with pools. They go from strength to strength. Each one appears before God in Zion. O Lord of hosts, hear my prayer. Give ear, O God of Jacob, Selah. Behold, our shield, O Lord, look on the face of your anointed for a day in your courts is better than a thousand elsewhere. I would rather be a doorkeeper in the house of God than dwell in the tents of wickedness. For the Lord is a sun and shield and the Lord bestows favor and honor. No good thing does he withhold from those who walk uprightly. O Lord of hosts, blessed is the one who trusts in you. You can be in the courts of the Lord if your heart has a highway to gone. You don't have to enter in to that physical temple. Psalm 1611 says, you make known to me the path of life. In your presence, there's fullness of joy. At your right hands are pleasures forevermore. I assume you're all Gentiles. I know you're all sinners. And the shocker is that you and I can come into the courts of the Lord, even when you're in the darkest valley of your life and it can be like a fruitful garden 
because Jesus Christ became your sacrifice to take your place. The privilege we have. And then the end of this text, we consider Jesus' undeniable authority challenged. Of course it is. The chief priests and the scribes and the principal men of the people were seeking to destroy him, but they did not find anything they could do for all the people were hanging on his words. At the end of Mark, right before Jesus' crucifixion, Mark 14, 57, some, some stood up and bore false witnesses against him saying, we heard him say, I'll destroy this temple that is made with hands and in three days I'll build another not made with hands. Yet, even about this, their testimony did not agree. The high priest stood up in the midst and asked Jesus, this is the high priest, this is the big dog, have you no answer to make? What is it that these men testify against you? But he remained silent, made no answer. And again, the high priest asked him, are you the Christ, the son of the blessed? Jesus said, I am. And you'll see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power coming with the clouds of heaven <laughs> in ultimate authority. And the high priest tore his garments and said, what further witnesses do we need? We've heard this blasphemy. What's your decision? And they all condemned him deserving death. And some began to spit on him and to cover his face and strike him saying, prophesy. And the guards received him with blows. My prayer is, is that you would see this glorious authority that Christ has. He uses it for good. He draws in sinners. When, when Christ died on the cross, what happened? That curtain ripped in two. We all can flood into the holies of holies when we trust in Christ. Why would we buck the authority of Christ? Do we know, know better than what He knows? Is there going to be more joy doing it our own way? My prayer is, is that any part of your life that you know is in rebellion to Christ, that you would confess it, that you would come to Christ who came to save sinners just like you. You're not too defiled. You're not too deformed. You're not too far gone for Christ. If you will humble yourself before Him as Lord, cling to Him by faith, and you will be reconciled to the God of the universe. And you can be in His presence no matter where you are at any time in your life because of Christ. Father, thank You for Jesus. Thank You that what He attacked was not the world, but was the hypocritical Judaism of His day. And Father, I pray that we wouldn't spend much time thinking about how we're better than that world out there but rather we would ask that you would reveal to us any way inside our hearts that is in rebellion to you 
Because Lord, with the Apostle Paul, we confess that we want to fulfill our ministry. That we don't want to count our life as valuable to ourselves, but we want to offer it up as a living sacrifice. Lord, we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.